Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Tilly and I talk about job loss, homeschooling, latchkey kids, pets, and intensity during COVID-19. We talk a little bit about chronic pain, but mostly about COVID, about our fears, our hopes, our coping strategies. I mean, on the plus side, as a silver lining, I guess COVID hasn't slowed down my content generation as I have a lot of time unemployed to be recording podcasts. So that's a plus, I guess. In any case, take care of yourselves and stay safe out there. Okay. Um, I am a 41-year-old white um, genderqueer femme who has lived their entire lives on the stolen land of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam people known as Vancouver, BC. I am have been involved in the local kink community for over 20 years. Um, I experienced multiple chronic illnesses, all of them invisible, and mental illness, and... I am generally passionate about connecting people and resources. So today we were going to talk a little bit about employment during COVID and we're both kind of in almost opposite positions where I'm hopefully unemployed and applying for a job and you are currently employed and accepting coming out of a job. Is that right? Yeah, I have my last day of work is tomorrow, actually, on my job that I had had for four years and that I was very much looking forward to uh, a long period of stability, um, Mm -hmm. this current employment. And then COVID happened. And since I'm employed in the nonprofit sector, there's only Mm -hmm. so much... Um, there's only so much security in that sector in general. Um, Mm -hmm. not to, not of any flaws of its own. It's just, it, it, that's a huge structural social issue. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, so I've, I've was given notice about two weeks ago and I've been, I'm just, you know, kind of rolling with this process and rolling with my own emotions and, you know, figuring out what's next in a period where 
I haven't really checked out the job market extensively, but I assume things are a bit different than the last time I searched for a job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine they would be anything like they once were, especially with how much the economy's contracted. Um, hopefully the, um, the CEWS, which I think was the Canada emergency wage subsidy has like really helped to offset the number of people that have been displaced. So hopefully the job market isn't as bad as it could be. Definitely. There's also, um, the, the CERB, um, actually maybe, maybe the C doesn't stand for Canada. Is it the, is it the coronavirus? Could be coronavirus. <laughs> it's Canadian emergency response benefit is. Oh, amazing. So I was right. It is, it is Canada. Awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. So there's that, which people are actually all going to be getting off of in about a month here. Um, even if they started in the very beginning, now we're sort of in that phasing out period where people are going to be getting off that benefit. And, you know, I mean, it was, it was comfortable enough, I think for enough folks who didn't have to pay Vancouver rent, you know, $2,000 a month is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, and for those folks that were, um, employed for enough hours beforehand, they'll qualify for EI, which is going to be set to a minimum of 1600 a month now. Yeah. Which is, that is such a relief. Yeah. Cause I was, I mean, I was full-time employed before and was laid off for COVID related reasons, but because I had just been hired a couple months prior to COVID, um, in this very exciting full-time theater role, which they're so hard to get. I can't believe I landed a full-time theater role. I was so excited for it. I love the idea of just like facilitating art and being able to work and get paid and watch live theater is such a treat, like just incredible. Um, and I don't have enough hours to qualify for EI. <laughs> oh no. Cause I was um, freelancing before that. So I was freelancing, didn't get any full-time hours recorded. Um, then went into working in theater full-time for a couple months, which was all preseason. We were getting ready for big shows and then all of them got canceled. Right. And the industry is just like completely scrapped seemingly right now. Yeah. I, I am a little, as somebody who enjoys the arts, I am, and like, I have a small plotting visual art practice myself. Um, I'm a little terrified about what COVID's going to do to the art scene. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly have, have no idea. My hope is, especially with it being summer, my hope was that arts would move outside, that we would do more open air, you know, pop-up theater type stuff as opposed to indoor, but folks haven't really folks are only just sort of grappling with the end of the first lockdown now and because school's starting and people are actually thinking of sending their kids to school which just boggles my mind i'm like we're in such a progressive you know country that has really thought out its serb response our numbers are doing okay um but you know we're just about to hit that second uptick and just throw fuel on the fire. All the kids are going to go back to school. And I'm like, why are we for, why are we pushing this? Like, I know parents need daycare to go back to work and that's fundamentally the issue we're grappling with, but it's, it's really hard to, to watch and be like, well, unless those kids are getting taught outside, I don't, I don't understand why we would put a whole bunch of people who are not responsible enough. Cause we're talking like primary school kids here to effectively wear their masks and wash their hands. And it's not their fault. They're just little kids and we can't expect them to 
all be in close proximity and not spread sickness. Yeah, it's a it's a developmental stage thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I I know a lot of parents. I'm an aunt, and like, mm-hmm. I just everyone I know is struggling with with the options, right? Like, yeah. And not I mean, we good ones. We didn't have workspaces at home before. And we're trying to carve them out of our spaces. But if you have kids, not only do you not have a workspace, you don't have like a, a daycare area. There's no way to pen kids into a room all day. Like this is not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not everyone's equipped to do homeschooling or unschooling. Right. right. Even if, even if we did a program where we could send out, um, you know, Chromebooks or educational devices for free, like subsidized. <clears throat> so that parents could get their kids online into school if they aren't able to do online, which is already, it's a pretty small demographic, I would think, of people who are enfranchised enough to have homes in the first place. And uh, yeah, even then though, we're talking about like, how do you carve out that peaceful workspace where you can go to work, hopefully from home, um, and have your kids school themselves from home online like it's one thing to be a child of the 90s you know like a latchkey kid i think was the term Um, but that was when your parents had a workspace and they didn't have to worry about you coming home from school interrupting their workflow asking them a million questions asking about dinner like it's totally different now oh yeah i was i was definitely a latchkey kid both my parents worked out of the home and you know there was it when we're talking latchkey kids, though, we're talking about a span of like one to three hours unsupervised in the afternoon after someone else has been instructing them all day. Right. right? Like instead of like I'm thinking of a bunch of the families I know where both parents work out or used to work outside of the home. Now both parents might be working inside the home and mm-hmm. there's no one to supervise learning. And Again, like, I don't, like, I'm, I'm not very educated on the alternatives to the type of schooling we do. But one mm-hmm. thing I, I know is that most children need a certain amount of supervision or support to, yeah, you know, you know, to complete their reading, to go through and do the quiz to, and they need right. people to do things like answer questions and explain some of these complicated concepts to them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And if you've got both parents working, which especially if you're talking about a city like Vancouver is a financial Mm -hmm. necessity, Mm -hmm. then yeah, it's right. And then how do you, how do you have two workspaces in a home, which in Vancouver is already fairly compressed for square footage plus an education space? Right. Like one person's going to have to work in the bedroom. One person's going to have to work in like the dining room. And then I guess the kids have the living room and you hope that there's enough like audio separation. Right. But it, it is, it is an untenable long-term situation to coop that many people up together. And then after you're done work, what do you do? Will you exit your separated space and go into a common space that someone else has been in all day? It's like people just want to be outside or or not feel locked up or quarantined, right? Yeah. And we we 
we like transitions and we like a different Mm. feel. Like I imagine if you are, I mean, one thing I've definitely experienced because I have been working from home since March Mm -hmm. is I am, I am almost developing a feeling of resentment towards my home Mm. because I'm here all the time and I wasn't used to that. And I, really enjoy the physical and emotional separation of workspace versus home space. Totally. My home is no, no longer where I pursue my own creative um, interests or I mm-hmm. read a book or I relax or I binge watch Netflix. It's also a place now where I complete work tasks, mm-hmm. which might continue in the foreseeable future who knows like i'll definitely Mm -hmm. be doing a job search from my home very soon and depending on what kind of job i get because i'm most qualified for like pink collar administrative type jobs what's pink collar i might be required to work from home again it might not be safe for me to work in an office situation right and and this is going to continue indefinitely and Um, as I said earlier to you, my partner and I have 700 square feet. So that's a little two bedroom unit in a housing cooperative, which we're very lucky to live in. But it's really like, I, it's very hard to figure out ways to use this space efficiently for a home office and a living space and a relaxing space. And to do things like maintain my sleep hygiene, which means I only use my bedroom for, you know, sleeping, sex, and the occasional confidential video call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I feel like folks are getting a lot more creative with the space they have. And it's reminding me a little bit of like micro apartments in Paris where, um, I, I was only there visiting for a few days, but I got a uh, an anniversary present from an especially amazing partner who um, who we both know who crowdfunded among our friends and promised rewards like pictures and postcards and souvenirs, and it was just like such a loving and incredible thing they did for for me because I mean I would say for us because they came along, but it was really for me, um, which was so wonderful of them, yeah. and we got to this Airbnb, this tiny Parisian micro apartment, and it was like less than 200 square feet. It was, it was so tiny. It was basically just a bed. And there were like, there was like a closet and a teeny shelf on the wall. There was not really, there was no kitchen there was a bathroom and a shower, but they were mounted in weird positions, like raised into the wall. It was the strangest thing. And yet um, there was a tiny window that we could look out at Paris through and it functioned. It just sucked. And like the idea is you're in that apartment just to sleep and then you leave that apartment And we just aren't getting the same amount of time outside. And the irony is, 
it's far safer outside than it is indoors with other people. So provided you're wearing a mask and social distancing, there's no reason you can't go outside and just enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, I definitely have been. That's one of the things I've been grateful about this summer is I've definitely been trying to maximize my time outside. But Mm -hmm. if you're trying to work, right, you know, like I'm I have this large patio attached to my suite, which is wonderful, Mm -hmm. but I'm on a main street. So there's constantly heavy trucks. I'm close enough to a hospital that I get frequent sirens. There's constant passerby like the environmental noise is untenable for me and I again on the subject of losing things in my tiny apartment I can't find my bluetooth headphones so right yeah um and not everyone not everyone living in a small apartment has access to outdoor space Mm -hmm. so I was yeah I've been I was talking with my my group chat um, with my American friends and we were got on the topic this morning of pandemic fatigue and just that, like, mm-hmm. this is really hard as a human. Mm-hmm. It is, it is like a lot of people are, I think are really struggling. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was watching my cat. My cat was, I, I have, um, I foster with Vokra and I have this super shy kitty right now. And she looks like a teeny little lynx. She is one year old and is just afraid of her own shadow. And I've been doing training with her to try and normalize movement and to try and normalize even just gently tossing a treat is enough to make her run out of the room. But then she'll like skulk back in and be like, wait, there was a treat here, right? And like eat the treat and like look at me. And then like run away. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, that sounds that sounds like a really, really like difficult but rewarding task. It was it has been super difficult. Um, but we've gotten to the point where like I was crawling under the bed to give her pets because she would hide under the bed and she's such a darling. Like no matter how scared she is, she's never scratched me, she's never been aggressive, she's always just kind of coward. And when I pet her, she purrs even when she's scared, which is so sweet. So I got to the point where she's happy coming out. Um, I got to the point where she's okay being seen by people. We've gotten to the point where she's okay being around us while we're standing or sitting. But if we're walking, she bolts out of the room. Um, And we're getting to the point where I can toss her treats and she's almost not too scared to run out of the room. Although she still runs out of the room when I toss the treat. But we're getting there and she already has a forever home. Someone is adopting her in like six days and I'm continuing doing the training and they just absolutely, we did a visit and they fell in love with this cat and they're like, I'm happy to continue the work. And I was like, yay. So now I get a new foster kitty soon, but I'm going to really miss this one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've been thinking a lot in the last year about, care and attention as like how as a way love manifests and and what it means to to care and attend to something even if you don't necessarily love it like Mm. i think a form of love starts to develop when you focus care and attention on anything Mm -hmm. enough right and of course cats cats are i don't know i find them inherently lovable 
Oh, definitely. Um, but I'm a cat person. Yeah. So that's an interesting point that you brought up, that love can develop from care and attention rather than the other way around. And I think you're right. Like, I think you're spot on. It's kind of interesting that sometimes the fastest way to become closer friends with someone is to ask them for something. Mm. Like if you're polite about it and you demonstrate like expected social modeling, like you model sort of like expected behavior, but you're like, Hey, I kind of need this thing and it's totally okay if you say no, but like, would you mind if I borrowed this thing from you? People will like you more after they've like lent you a thing and you've returned it because you're kind of validating that social contract, building trust and showing vulnerability. And ironically, that all comes from them being giving and caring. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they don't frame it that way. And Right. They're just like, oh yeah, I kind of like that person. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately about how... I'm like, I like to connect with people. I like to help people out. I like to um, show care in various ways. And I realized that maybe by not allowing people to help me out or Mm -hmm. care for me in that ways that I'm actually deflecting a certain amount of intimacy. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Which I'm just like, that's like on my, I have a, I have a list. I kind of have an internal list of like areas to push my comfort zones in. And that's definitely one of them. Hmm, that's nice. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like people who lead really intense lives can be really intense people and people with chronic pain can lead really intense lives. And then you end up with a situation where like, at least for me, sometimes I'm worried it'll be too intense for people. So I like, I come across as almost, I don't want to say sedated, but as like really calm because I'll do my best to like smooth out the peaks and valleys and give people the consistency that I think they expect from me. Mm, that and that's really, not always. Yeah. That really resonates with my experience as somebody with bipolar disorder, which is kind of a clinical diagnosis of too much. Mm, interesting. <laughs> you know, you're, too happy, you're too sad. You're too both. Um, you're like, I have been diagnosed as too much. Exactly. Uh, you know, clinically too much, um, which is really funny because <laughs> I have a, I have a dear friend who's got borderline personality disorder and they're like, no, I think borderline personality is also clinical diagnosis of too much <laughs> in in its own way. Um, totally. That's that's yeah. interesting. I've always thought, and again, I don't have borderline. I do have friends with borderline. I've always thought of borderline as being too staunchly committed to one position or another. Mm. Rather than like bipolar, which tends to be like, my feelings are on 13. Yeah, I've also, I've, I've definitely observed that um, the people in my life with borderline definitely also experience feelings oh got it okay fair enough fair enough yeah um but it's like it tends to be in these these really compressed bursts um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and again i'm not an expert you know i'm um mostly just reflecting what i've observed so it's yeah and and it's 
yeah, it's fascinating to see how it plays out um, with people. But yeah, I, I do definitely have the same thing of wanting to protect people from my too muchness. And when you said people with chronic pain or chronic illness tend to be too much, I was just thinking um, someone I know who was actually the first person I met with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is Mm -hmm. a genetic chronic condition I live with. Mm -hmm. um, She lives with like a high amount of chronic pain and her homes are always beautiful and brightly colored and decorated in a way that like if her sense of color and arrangement and saturation wasn't like so beautifully consistent it would be too much but <laughs> yeah, you kind of have this experience of being in her home and everywhere you look there's something beautiful to enjoy Aww. Yeah, and um, and the reason she does all that is as a mitigating factor to deal with, like, she has this internal experience of extreme pain, so she surrounds herself with beauty. Hmm. And, and I, I, I'm thinking that intensity is definitely kind of a therapeutic way that I've dealt with some of my mood states, um, be they manic or depressive or Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a way of like matching the intensity in my head is Mm -hmm. like external intensity and and it's this i think it's the same thing with pain too when there's a really intense sensation of pain if you can have a really intense sensation of heat say getting into a really hot bath sometimes it pulls your focus and that can be such a wonderful relief yeah Definitely, definitely. Like some of my, yeah, like some of my BDSM practice has definitely been based in either distracting from or complementing experience of intensity that, that I don't necessarily want to sit with or appreciate, right? And I think it's neat how when the intention behind the activity is to be in a really intense state, the normal things that seem overly intense for other situations are suddenly like at a matched volume and everything just feels a little more normal. Like you feel like nothing is wrong with those things because they're in an environment that can contain them safely. Right. Yeah. Oh, context is so important. Mm -hmm. With that stuff. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So interestingly, we can bring all of this back around to COVID because as people with experience with really intense states, um, like COVID is, is clinically too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like we are all dealing with too much all the time. Like one thing I, I just realized I'm, so my partner and I don't have a defined DS dynamic, Mm -hmm. but we have definitely realized with our relationship, there's a level of like. I manage and she does things Um, Mm -hmm. because she's got severe ADHD. I don't. So I have Mm -hmm. functioning on a different level than she does. Um, Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I have, you know, physical issues and chronic pain 
So she's able to do things mm-hmm. like just like, can you lift this heavy thing? And she's just she's just got it. It's done. It's good. You know, she used to help people move house all the time. Mm-hmm. She's one of those people. It's really like <laughs> being able bodied seems really miraculous when you've never really done it. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So I realize I'm one of the management pieces that I'm engaging in lately is I have been planning things like I'm like, Hey love, I just picked some blackberries and I bought some ice cream so we can have a treat right now. Or I'm like, you know, we were watching sense together. Oh, so good. Oh God. Yeah. It was so beautiful. Um, The orgy scenes are so good. Sorry. The orgy scenes are so good. The orgy scenes are great. Everything is so good. Like the writing, the characterization, the, um, the way everyone, like everyone interrelates to each other within the cluster, but also like the chosen family outside of the clusters. Like, I just love it so much. And my partner's not a sci-fi person. So I, you know, worked on convinced her to watch it with me. And she's a trans woman and she just, I, she fell in love with Nomi. Like, of course, Nomi's such a good character. Nomi's amazing. Um, and so we really enjoyed it. So when we got to the finale, which is like two and a half hours. Yeah. And amazing. I was like, okay, let's make an event of this. Let's like plan Aww. a Saturday night. Let's order some food. Um, Cause one of the things that has been, maybe not too much, but kind of not enough for me as I'm experiencing mm-hmm. what my friend Kona calls blurs day. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm just like, how, how is it the end of August? It was May last week. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like we're, we're not, you know, pride didn't happen or pride only happened virtually, but like, right. The city was not overwhelmed with rainbows physically. You know, we didn't go, I didn't go in, to any dance parties or any like readings or events or anything. And so time has no meaning in a lot of ways. So I'm starting to invest in creating, you know, Oh, it's Saturday. Let's do something different just to have an experience of difference and of time passing of milestones of events, because we need that. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, there are religious or spiritual or tied to like nature or harvest events throughout mm-hmm. the world because we need to like celebrate the passing of time, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I've been experiencing that myself. Like the notion it's about to be September, I'm like, I remember being panicked in March. I remember the the Corona stock market crash. I remember working until May and then I got laid off due to COVID in May and now I'm applying for a job and everything between those two points just feels like a blur of coping and grocery shopping under great stress. <laughs> oh God, grocery shopping is awful. <laughs> like if people could just stop neck breathing, I'd be happy. Yeah. I think they mostly have now, like the places I shop at are pretty good now, but in the beginning they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's, you know, like things are a little more relaxed than they Mm -hmm. used to be. I mean, I'm still curious to see. I'm trying to be curious 
instead of dreadful. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see what's going to happen in September and October as, you know, everyone's forced inside. Mm -hmm. It's traditional flu season. We're going to see whether or not there's upticks. Because I um, like I haven't stood in line to get into a store in quite a while. Mm -hmm. But I remember that from um, April and May. So I'm like, are are we going to go back to that? I I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. And it's going to be dreadful in the Vancouver rain. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think there's going to be a lot of umbrella sales. Oh my goodness. Um, there's going to be a lot of umbrella sales with like clear plastic that drapes down around you to protect you from other people breathing on you. Oh, yeah, that might not be so bad. I feel like I could, this is a million dollar idea. I should, um, <laughs> I should, um, copyright it. You should, you should, you should develop this. This can be what you do with your, your unemployment. Yes. It will be called the umbrona. Umbrona. do you have any closing comments on um job security during covid um i just i just think that humans don't deal with well with uncertainty and we're all like dealing with uncertainty right now and i really hope that you know i hope your situation sorts out i hope i find a good situation Mm -hmm. you know i yeah I worry for yeah. people, but I'm hoping for the best. Yeah, that sounds like a really sort of healthy place to kind of leave folks is like, obviously, these things are still really important. Um, Security is important. And taking time to pause and take a breath and sort of ask ourselves if we're doing what's best for us right now, if what we're doing is serving us like trying to interrupt the anxiety, trying to interrupt that any, any harmful patterns. I was finding myself going to the fridge all of the time and I had to start interrupting myself. Every time I touched the fridge door handle, I had to stop, take one breath and ask myself if I was hungry or anxious. And it's like, that was very hard, but it is good. I, I am actually taking some of my severance pay and taking myself on vacation. Ooh. Yeah, someplace local, of course, not crossing any borders, not getting on an airplane. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm taking I'm taking four or five days just to spend time with myself and figure out, you know, what how I'm going to approach my job search in the middle of Corona. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> well, good luck to all of our listeners with wherever they are. I hope you and yours are safe and well. And uh, thank you so much, Tilly, for being on this episode of Intimate Interactions. No problem. Thank you. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com. And I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. 
You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.